show is a podcast about marketing, entrepreneurship, and technology. Seconds when I hit that live button, but as soon as I do, um, we're going to get going. So, uh, welcome everyone to the show. Today, I'll be interviewing a very special guest of mine, longtime friend. I've actually known this guy for about half a decade, Luke Barmgarten. Barmgarten, close enough. Barmgarten, sorry, Barmgarten, man. Entrepreneur connoisseur of swords, he has co-owned many, many small businesses, partnerships in Spokane, Washington. And uh, yeah, beginning with, uh, I'm just going to run down the list real quick. Fellow, which is a co-working space. Terrain, which is an art cooperative. And they also do a show once a year, a big art show. It's pretty amazing. Treatment, a creative agency. And uh, now he has his very own podcast called Range, where he riffs about local politics, culture, and current events. And then maybe some other experiments. I have no idea, but maybe he'll share it with me. So thank you. Thank you for coming on the show, Luke. Yeah, totally, man. Thanks for having me. I think since maybe since you left Spokane, I was I'm a founding board member of a a immigrant and refugee nonprofit, uh, like an incubation kitchen called Feast. That's pretty cool. So. Whoa. I want to talk about that later too. That's amazing. Definitely. (laughs) So real quick, I don't know if a lot of people know about show podcasts. This will be maybe the first episode. I'm not sure, but it actually stands (laughs) for something. It's a, it's an acronym. So it's about story, hook, offer, and win. So in in the marketing world, we talk about hooks and offers and stories. So I thought we'd kind of blend that all in together into a story because I love sharing stories and or more accurately, I love asking questions about other people's stories. So I really appreciate you taking the time to yeah. meet with me. Happy to be here, man. Cool, man. So where, where do you want to get started? Can, can we get started with the Inlander? Because I feel like that's kind of where the culmination started because I know like you worked for them for a little bit before you jumped ship and did your own thing or how, how far back do you want to go? Yeah, no, I think, I think that's good. Story. I think um, I, all, cause all the stuff that I do in advertising and marketing and, and community building all kind of started there and it's all completely self-taught. I was a philosophy major in college. So like, you know, the first, uh, the first time I ever thought about, um, I guess marketing and I didn't think about it in those terms was like trying to work with the art director at the paper to create the coolest layouts possible to like make as, you know, try to entice as many people to read the stories I was writing as possible. So, Mm. you know, everything that kind of came after that is built on, you know, eight, almost eight years of, of being a writer and then eventually the arts editor at the Inlander trying to, you know, tell the best stories we could and put them in a, in a, uh, format that would, you know, as people are sort of flipping through the page and, you know, it's not unlike what, you know, happens on Instagram and Facebook or whatever on your phone. It's like getting, hooking people with, um, just something that grabs their attention and makes them pause for a moment. Cause that's like kind of the first, the first thing you got to do. So. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. So you learned a lot from the Inlander and how long did you work there before you decided to jump up and do your own thing? Close to eight years. And it's a, it's an all weekly, you know, so if people who are in Seattle or whatever, Austin, I think Austin's got the Chronicle and uh, Seattle's got the stranger. Now he used to have the Seattle weekly. It's like the Inlander is a little different insofar as it's, it's still an alternative like weekly newspaper, but it's pretty mainstream and the, like the publisher uh, and like editor and publisher, at the time was like, you know, it's just like, it's, it's a mainstream audience all weekly, which makes it kind of interesting, kind of rare in the market and certainly rare for journalism 
but it also meant that like, you know, my editor was always trying to like, I was a music writer at the time wanting to write about like metal bands and stuff. And he was always like, okay, make, make sure your grandma wants to read this article about metal bands, you know? So it's a pretty interesting and fun way of taking stories that could be super specific or super niche and trying to find like, um, a universal human element to them. Love that. I love that. So, um, can you walk me through how you decided to continue your story after the Inlander? Um, it's, it's weird and it's all over the place, but kind of organically, you know, organically we were, you know, so my various friends that I had at the Inlander and outside the Inlander, a friend of mine who was a, um, well, my now wife who worked at the museum, my uh, friend Patrick, who was a, a music promoter in Spokane, we were all seeing the same problem that people, the moment like you'd get any success in Spokane, you would want to leave immediately, go to Seattle, go to Portland at the time. Uh, and so, and, and the complaint was that there was no community in Spokane. There was no artistic or creative community. And, you know, we got that from enough people, like dozens and dozens of people that I'm like, that's, that is a community. There are dozens of people complaining about how there's no community. That is enough to be a community. That is a community. So the first, you know, terrain was just, let's put a bunch of art on the walls. Let's throw a party. Let's book some bands. Let's just try to get people talking who maybe haven't met each other before in the past or whatever, for whatever reason, and see, see what that can do. See if that can catalyze anything. We weren't trying to be like top down community builders, just trying to get people in rooms um, and talk. Cause you know, it was, it was a community building effort, but it was also a little bit selfish. It was like, I was sick of writing about cool people, cool artists, cool bands, and then having them leave, you know? And so, you know, almost 13 years later uh, that organization's grown into a massive you know we do a a ton of stuff in in town but um people have started to move to spokane and i don't think we're entirely you know we don't deserve all the credit for it but we definitely helped like spark community in spokane among you know young creative people who are always like the the vanguard the vanguard of uh of culture and, you know, getting people to, to relocate places. Right. The downside of that's obviously gentrification, but it starts with when nobody wants to be in your town, the first people you have to recruit are the, the young artists. Uh, and so from yeah. there uh, we, and I actually couldn't, uh, afford to continue writing for a news for an, an alternative newspaper. So I took a job as a copywriter basically at a creative firm in Spokane. And while I was there, I sort of started getting more of a, um, mainstream sort of education in, in marketing and advertising and digital specifically. And then, um, while I would, but it was also like a lot less work than (laughs) being a journalist. I was shocked at how, how much more money I made for how much less work I was doing. Uh, and so I had all this time on my hands and had written a story about coworking, uh, people who were trying to start a coworking space in Spokane back when I was still at the Inlander. And, I was trying to figure out if they'd actually done it because I was thinking about maybe just renting some space and, you know, do, working on some fiction or just having a kind of an office outside of my day job. And they had, it hadn't actually happened. So I started thinking about maybe, you know, creating it myself. So that kind of led to long story short, like got six people who were relatively interested in uh, co-working to like sign on for six months uh, and then I got a, a friend of mine who worked at a, or who was the the principal of an architecture design firm called HGG, 
was leaving his space. And so we like uh, subleased a really, really small space to sort of bootstrap the co-working space. Love that. And that's how Fellow was born, right? Yeah. Yep. Above and raw sushi uh, in uh, downtown Spokane. Isn't it now called the Wave? <laughs> wave Sushi? Yeah. Although that's clo- like they're moving that out. That whole building is getting turned into condos now. So that's, I don't know what's going to, what's there anymore. Wow. Yeah. Yep. But downtown has changed so much since we were there. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's happening pretty quickly too. Yeah. A lot of restaurants during COVID have actually hung on surprisingly well, though, though things are starting to sort of fall apart a little bit. Right. But yeah, tons of, tons of change and we need housing downtown so badly. I heard the, uh, I heard about the rid path. How was that going or that endeavor? I think it's, it's troubled. It's, it's awesome because it's mostly, you know, it's micro apartments, low income uh, or fixed income people, which is great. But I think it's the financial situation there has always been, it was a, one of the guys that was the original developers is like in federal prison for fraud. (laughs) So there was all sorts of financial, um, shadiness going on there. And I think that's even with subsequent people have taken it over. It's still sort of in the hole. So I think it's mostly full with residential, but there's, I don't think there's any retail in there yet. And so, and I've heard there's, you know, the developers are having a hard time getting the money to just like build stuff out. So it's tough. All right. All right. Yeah. I'd love to just backtrack a little bit before fellow. And you were talking about just your, you had a lot of opportunity in the ad agency realm to think, to philosophize, let's say, and to like build that community you were saying about vanguards and whatnot. And I was like, wasn't I, I wasn't quite there yet, but I remember I met you in fellow the very first time. And I showed you a photo project. I don't know if you remember the first time we met. I, I vaguely, yeah, I remember the photo project yeah. for sure. Yeah. Oh, I don't think. Yeah, I think everyone kind of remember that. But I, I thought it was really interesting that you that I don't know, like that that important point you brought up was like so poignant in our life. Like my wife and I, you know, when we moved to Spokane, oh, cool, we were looking for community, and yeah. one of the first we and I think mutual friends of ours, Chatham. Yeah, we stayed. Yeah. And then from there, he connected us with you guys. And then we were introduced to terrain and then got really involved after that. And if it wasn't for you guys at that point in time, I don't think we would have made it as a photo studio. Wow. That's really cool to hear, man. I appreciate that. That's seriously, man. That's an awesome. Yeah. And, and it was just because Chatham was like, yeah, man, you can stay at our place before we even moved to Spokane. He was like, yeah, you could just stay up in my loft. I have an extra room. Yeah. You can stay for two weeks. Actually, we stayed with him for three weeks before we even wow. moved to Spokane. That's awesome. He's the nicest guy ever. Shout out to Chad. I'm not even sure if he's going to even listen to this, but it's okay. Yeah. Because the, the point you brought earlier was just, it, it just made me like time travel back of like when we first started in Spokane. And yeah, I worked at some really crappy part-time jobs. I didn't do my photo studio full-time. At, you know, I worked yeah. at plenty of, of retail or restaurants, you know, and, but I still held on to my dream of running a photo studio in, in a downtown city somewhere. Yeah. It just so happened to be Spokane. And I did that for like a good four years before I moved to Seattle, but big shout out to terrain and what you guys did. I thought that was very meaningful and very impactful. Well, and Chatham was one of the founding members of fellow and he was, uh, absolutely instrumental in helping us get the the space we now occupy, which actually is, um, a scalable size that will eventually make, uh, hopefully turn a profit. 
So yeah, Chatham, Chatham's an awesome guy. He's one of the people that definitely holds Spokane together. Founding member right there. I love it. I love it. So from, from fellow, the co-working space, when did you decide to create your own creative agency um, treatment? How well, so work? yeah, working at, um, working at the firm in Spokane, was cool because we got like, you know, I got to work on national accounts like AT&T and Nickelodeon and Disney made a few like advertorial or advert like advert games they're called so like video games for you know like spongebob and teenage mutant ninja turtles and it, it was fun um yeah. also did some really just um direct response drudgery uh advertising work for at&t that was awful and pretty quick okay. within you know um part of the one he found fellow was like i don't think i'm going to be doing national advertising work for the rest of my life. I didn't know what I was going to do. It was just like, I got kind of used to seeing the fruits of my labor working locally, you know, feeling the impact of my work in some way, whether it's journalism or advertising or the, the art thing we were doing with train or with fellow and the just national ad thing just didn't like, you know, just wasn't my thing, but it gave me a lot of, you know, usable skills. And so I had an opportunity to be the uh, interim director of Spokane arts while I was at, and that seemed like a good opportunity to jump from the agency and I didn't end up getting that job. So I was, um, in fellow on unemployment, uh, and, uh, a, my then business partner and fellow Benji Wade was kind of in a similar situation and he had started doing some consulting work with local, uh, basically doing web consulting. Uh, and we decided to just give it a shot for lack of other options or lack of better ideas. And, uh, close to six years later treatment is now like a, uh, we've got six people on the team, six full-time staffers. So it's pretty cool. And we work almost exclusively with local businesses, kind of trying to bring the, um, the national caliber caliber work. We were, he used to, he was at North by Northwest, which is a film production company, but he was doing the digital side of things. So the sort of like regional and national clientele, you know, regional and national, like, uh, chops to, to local, um, to local clients and a lot of, a lot of work with governments, a lot of work with nonprofits where I'm like, we we're in the process of becoming a B Corp, um, which is like a mission driven corporation where we, you know, you actually like, um, codify in your, you know, articles of incorporation and your other governing documents, like where we don't just give a shit about making profit. We give a shit about the pe like our community, our individual team, our customers, the environment, stuff like that. Um, but we kind of always, we even started it with a, um, more of a, like a mission driven focus, I would say. So we've sort of, we've worked with just like mainstream businesses plenty, but we do a lot of work with, um, nonprofits that we feel missionally drawn to and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So it sounds like from your big national experience, you're tr trying to focus more on a local level yeah. with yeah. a lot of what you're doing now, including nonprofit work. It sounds like charities that's so forth. That's now, yeah. Right? And, and not yeah. So locally for sure. But then also just people that are like aligned with us that feel like a good fit, you know, like, um, AT&T AT is not like evil. evil. That's not local. <laughs> yeah. But it's like they're, but they're just yeah. like, they're profit driven. Like all they, all they really care about at the end of the day is like getting you in, in the case of the work I was doing, getting yeah. you to sign up for like a third tier cable service. That's only in the mid Atlantic States. It's like in 16 States. It was terrible. We couldn't use words like best. We couldn't even use words like great. The legal team at AT&T made us use words like 
really good. <laughs> so I don't know. Okay. It was like, if I'm going to keep doing this work, you know, it's a weird yeah. thing going from journalism to advertising, to be completely honest. It's like, um, and so like one of the things that I pretty quickly had to come to Jesus moment about was like, if I'm going to keep doing this work, it's got to be for stuff that I believe in. Otherwise it's just feels kind of gross at the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah. Meaningful work that you believe in definitely will take everyone far. If you can find that meaning and have that happiness in the struggle is a big, important part of running or doing what you love and running your own business. And so tell me a little bit about, let's see, what other business have we not talked about? Can we talk about the charity or sorry, the nonprofit? I know there are two different things. Yeah. So my, um, my buddy Ross, who's a writer in town, um, who I've worked with over years, Ross Carper, um, had this idea with a couple friends of his to, um, basically like, you know, the, the immigrant and refugee situation in all of America, but especially Spokane, Spokane has a really, really high world relief is very, um, active in Spokane. We have a, because we're a relatively, we're a mid-sized city, so we're like approachable. Cost of living is in a, in the right range, although that's changing. <laughs> it's getting harder and harder to live here. Right. Uh, but it also, you know, has really for a city our size has really good transit, has really good services. Um, so as a result of that, like cities like Spokane end up having a like a disproportionately large number of uh, refugee resettlements and immigrant resettlements, which is awesome for us. It makes you know our, our relatively white place. Uh, more diverse, which is good in and of itself. But one of the problems is you have, you know, we're pretty, um, America, I would say as a whole is pretty chauvinistic about itself. And so you have people who are like engineers from Iraq. The only job they can get is driving cabs. Like there's a reason that there's like the cliche of like the, you know, um, South Asian or Middle Eastern cab driver. It's because like we don't allow people who have like, you know, degrees from really amazing universities or even just, you know, it's just, it's tough to break in, uh, as a, as an immigrant or a refugee in, in America in general. And so Ross's idea, which was really brilliant, um, is like, well, all of these, the vast majority of these people have their cultural cooking, whether they're like a trained chef or not, they like cook the food from their country. It's like generally in, you know, unlike America, it's pretty traditional that like people of all sort of economic, um, levels, like just cook the food from their, from their country. And so wouldn't it be awesome if we could sort of help these folks who want to like share their culture with the world, get a little bit more economic independence, um, and maybe not have to be a janitor at like Gonzaga or something, um, could have a little bit more financial autonomy and, and, and support their families in a way that, you know, they have more control over. And so the idea was to start this, um, immigrant and refugee kitchen that ended up being called feast. Um, so it's been open since, I guess, oh, almost a year, about a year. And right now we're only because of COVID, but also because the building we're in down on third Avenue in Spokane is like in the process of being renovated. We're doing like takeout only, but contact free stuff. But it's like four days, five days, four days a week. Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, um, every night of the week, it's a different chef, usually from a different region of the world, um, cooking like contact free takeout. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. Seriously. For Spokane too. Yeah. It's really, really cool. Um, so like now it's doing, doing like as a nonprofit since it's been open, has it been like, it's busy? Been, like, 
it's been great. It's actually one of the, um, it's like incredible and also a little frustrating that like, um, there's, a, there's just a ton of institutional support donors, um, grants, way more than we ever got in the, uh, the arts realm. It's just a lot easier. It's a lot easier ask to make of people who have money to give, but then on the, um, on the earned income side, like it pretty much sells out every night and generally you have to order, you know, we throw out the menu for the week on Mondays and you generally have to order before, you know, Wednesday or Thursday, otherwise, you know, Sunday's even going to be sold out. So it's, it's really cool the way the community on all levels has, has stepped up to support it. That's awesome. That's incredible. And when did that open up? You said last March or April? No, about a, about a year ago. So we, we did our like launch in, I think September, October. Okay. Uh, but then we didn't actually open up, I think until around this time last year, or maybe even a little bit into 2020. So we're like right around a year old. That's beautiful. Oh my gosh. And do they have plans after COVID restrictions are, are lifted to like have a dine-in experience? Or? Yeah, it's actually the old, uh, well, it was an Arctic Circle, and before that, it was a Panda Drive-In. So it was like the it was uh, owned by the same people that owned the Dicks downtown. It was built in the '40s. This old building down on the um, sort of the uh, the drive-through fast food row in Spokane. And uh, okay, I know where that is. Yeah. So it, it's actually the the people that designed the interior of the space are the same people that designed Fellow. A really, really talented team in Spokane, young design team, and. Uh, yeah, it's going to be amazing. It's going to have a full like, um, dine in experience just, um, right. and I think we're, yeah, when I think we're <laughs> at first it was like, we're going to be doing takeout forever, but then sure. we're definitely, I think, I think the, the restaurant is definitely going to be ready before COVID's over. So I think we'll be able to hopefully open up a dine in experience around the time that the, you know, the, the restrictions lift. Yeah, totally. I, I, I think, we're both thinking of the same restaurant, but I just want to be clear. So is that where they have a drive-through or is it like a Sonic where they pull in and they order and there's a bunch of, there was a drive-through, but it would have been shuttered for you. So do you remember, uh, Sushiyama? Mm-hmm. So yes. it's the Sushiyama building. So it was, oh, so I after see. it was Arctic circle and it closed down for a long time, then it became Sushiyama <laughs> for about a decade. So, yeah. And then yeah. Char- Charlie so retired. Yep. Not the actual building. They didn't take over that one. Okay. That's yeah, what yeah. I was thinking. Okay, which has nothing to do with the dicks in Seattle, by the way. I just want to no, clarify. It's not <laughs> different dicks. Different dicks. I know. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> uh, <laughs> man, that is cool. I wish I was in Spokane. Sometimes when I talk to people back in the day, it makes me wish I was there. But at the same time, it's just really cool to catch up, Luke. Yeah. Um, tell me more about, do you have any other interesting projects or experiments or anything in the works that you want to share? Um, um, well, so I mean, range. So in, during COVID, oh, yeah, tell know, me about range, your new podcast, right? Silly me. So, you know, I like left journalism close right. to eight years ago and, um, kind of left a piece of myself there. Um, it was kind of what I needed to do. But I, it feels like a hole. And I, you know, I'm uh, in my 30s. I got diagnosed with ADD. I have never really felt. I don't. I don't even know if I believe in the idea of like, you know, having like a a purpose or like something you were born to do or whatever in that sense. But um, for whatever reason, the most fulfilling thing I've ever done in my career was journalism. And so, and everything else is fun to some degree. But like the thing that brought all of the the most meaningful parts of work 
together for me was was journalism. And so I've been thinking about wanting to get back into it somehow. The, the model for journalism is absolutely broken, uh, at least traditional journalism. Um, but then there started to be, you know, the, the Patreon model, um, you know, podcasts like Chapo Trap House and, and others since then have like really made a path for, you know, just small donor or small membership model um, things. And at the same time, it seemed like Spokane's growing really, really fast. It's getting more and more progressive every day. There's not a, the media ecosystem in that sense is very, very behind the times. Um, like I said, the Inlander was created and kind of had to be a middle of the road politically newspaper because Spokane in the early nineties was a middle of the road at best place. Like it probably seemed very progressive. Like the Inlander seemed way more progressive than it actually was given how sort of conservative Spokane was at the time. So Spokane's changing drastically and the media ecosystem just isn't. And that's where like I have like some pretty strong philosophical feelings about the idea of the myth of objective journalism. Like people, we all have biases. And I think if we can be open about them and sort of speak from a a moral grounding, that's better than like pretending that you're totally impartial because we've seen what like the the veneer of impartiality gets us in our world. It gets us like this absolute like wild break where, you know, both sides think they are uh, totally like objectively true or objectively correct at all times when they're telling wildly, wildly different stories about the way the world works. And so Mm. I got to, I got to live abroad for a year in college in Italy and, I didn't, I wasn't in any way thinking about being a journalist at that time. But one of the things that struck me was like the dude that ran the, the pension that I lived in would like read like five different papers every day, like local Florence papers, uh, Florence, Italy. And, uh, it was like, there was the, like literally like the quasi fascist paper, like the, the so right wing, they're kind of still like really into Mussolini paper. They had the communist paper. They had the democratic socialist paper. They had just like the middle of the, you know, the kind of the, the New York times of Florence paper and he would read them all. And it was very, it struck me as like a really uh, informed and honest way of like consuming the news and learning about your city. And, you know, and so I was, when I became a journalist in America and that the sort of the, the modes different, right? Like all weeklies are their own thing, but like the mainstream journalism that you consume in America, like, pretends to be objective and for everyone and, and non-ideological, which is literally impossible in my mind. You can't, human beings aren't ideological, aren't, cannot be non-ideological. I think the best you can do is like own who you are, own your uh, feelings, perceptions, values, and then, but then also try to be fair in every sort of conversation you have with people, especially if they disagree with you about things. And so, that's kind of what we're trying to do with range is like a progressive voice grounded in a moral vision for, uh, the way we should move forward as a, as a city and a region, but, uh, recognizing that this is a time of explosive growth. And if we don't catch this shit quick and really make some decisions about the kind of city we want to be, we're going to end up in a spot like Seattle, to be honest, or even Tacoma, which has gotten like, is basically a bedroom community of Seattle at this point. It's so expensive to live there. 
it, you know, my friend, and, and this is true of Boise too. Like boy, my friends who live in Boise feel like they're becoming like an outpost of Salt Lake city because of how many people are moving from cities like Salt Lake, like Seattle, like Portland to these smaller, these mid-sized cities and sort of bringing lots of interesting thing, br- things, bringing culture, bringing jobs, bringing, you know, bringing just a diversity, like a literal, you know, like racial diversity, cultural diversity, diversity of viewpoints, all that stuff's good. But it also like locals, people who have lived there their whole life are feeling like their city is getting taken away from them or, and, and really importantly for like the economic life of a city, it's getting like we're Spokane has a housing crisis where the house that I bought in 2009, I don't think I could afford to buy today, even though I'm like much better off financially than I was when I was a working journalist. And my house is more than doubled in price. I feel super lucky that I was able to buy a house, you know, as a 29, eight year old person, but I couldn't even afford the house that I currently live in much less like buy something that's more of like a family home, you know? And so we, Spokane's never had to think about that in that way. And now we have had the last two years, 24 months, the, this is uh, information from the department of motor. Like, so the state DMV, sorry, I've got a dog barking two floors down. You can still hear it because they're loud. Um, the, a thousand people a month have been moving to Spokane County from out of state. Wow. So that means that, and that's, so that's not including people who are moving from Seattle. This is just people who are getting Washington driver's licenses. So wow. I don't even know how many people are moving from Seattle. It's, it might double that number, right? So we could have, we have at least 24,000 new adults, people who are old enough to drive, uh, moving to Spokane in the last two years. And we don't have a housing stock that supports that. And so, you know, it's a good time to think about not just, do journalism again, but actually do journalism that's got a sense of like, what do we, what can we do to make, to keep the city livable? Like we want, mm-hmm. you know, I, we, part of what we hoped to do when we started Terrain was get people excited about moving to Spokane, showing what a cool place it is and how awesome mm-hmm. it would be to live here. But now the, the other shoe is already dropped where it's like, okay, cool. And now people are coming. What do we do about that? What do we do about housing? What do we do about jobs? Um, yeah. <laughs> It's intense. Kind of reminds me of Traffic. Are you familiar with that book? It's a great book. You should check it out. I don't think so. Uh, I don't know. What is it? Uh, it's a book about traffic. Oh, like literal <laughs> like car literally traffic. traffic. Yes, car traffic. <laughs> I'll have to. Have, I, I love books, by the way. I read. I consume like no other, like two or three books a week. But I'll, I'll send you the information. But basically, yeah. what I'm hearing is we have too many traffic lights and not enough roundabouts. Kind of. I mean, unpack that for me. What do you mean? Um, So when I was in Australia, all right, so I was in a small town called Newcastle. It's about two hours north of Sydney. And it's a great little town, little beach town. But it was having the same issues that you're basically speaking of in Spokane. And what did they do to kind of solve these issues of overpopulation, right? They raised the rent right? They raised everything. They raised the prices because everybody wanted to be by the water. They wanted that perfect, you know, sea breeze, Florida-ness, but not too hot, not too cold. And it wasn't Sydney. It wasn't Sydney. So what did the, um, what did the urban planners do? They built more roundabouts and they reduced the traffic lights and it actually helped 
traffic for a little bit, for a little bit though, but it didn't solve the issues. And so what did they do next? (laughs) They brought NASCAR in. They built a racetrack in the middle of downtown Newcastle. And now it's a sham show. I don't even want to go back because it looks horrible. It's not what it was used to when I went and did a study abroad in Newcastle seven, eight years ago. Uh, It's completely changed. It's ruined the city, Luke. And it's just... Well, that's funny uh, because... So Newcastle was actually a city we used as inspiration for the for Terrain's window dressing program. So Ginger, um, Marcus Westbury, who kind of ran... um, was a Newcastle native and ran, um, I think like a, like basically like the Coachella of Melbourne. And, uh, he saw that like, in I think the late aughts, so like 08, 09. So maybe like just before you got there. Yeah. Oh, 10. I was in there. For okay. The study so maybe even yep. earlier than that, like he was seeing <laughs> a lot of the same stuff that Spokane was experiencing five, 10 years ago with like downtown was completely empty. Nobody wanted to be there. Um, like there was, they had something like an 80% vacancy rate in, uh, in retail spaces in downtown Newcastle. And he just started doing what, what, like among the things that inspired us to do window dressing was just like putting art and other, just basically making it as easy as possible to get like things into those vacant storefronts and then like encouraging people to come downtown. So that's, that's actually kind of like that. So it sounds like Newcastle for us was like an inspirational story. And now it's a cautionary tale of exactly what we're talking about. I mean, we're at a time where like, regardless of how you feel about capitalism, global capitalism (laughs) is so overheated and overcharged that like the (sighs) the people who are accepting like the founders of startups, um, like I have friends who are making, you know, high six figures doing stuff or, you know, whatever, making solid six figures who can't afford to live within 40 or 50 minutes of their work. And now that people have gotten used to working remotely, I think we're going to see people with like, like legit rich for Spokane, uh, salaries when they're just like normal tech workers, uh, coming from Seattle or San Francisco or something moving to places like this. And it's going to absolutely wreak havoc on the local economy. It's going to make it um, almost impossible for, for, you know, rank and file Spokenites to buy houses and maybe even stay in their houses. Like it might be, you know, one of the things that we've seen on the lower South Hill is what has always been sort of workforce or low income housing, like little modest, you know, 30, 40 unit, um, mid-century apartment buildings that were, you know, like 600 bucks a month for a one bedroom, like that somebody, you know, like a working person could afford are getting bought up, rents getting doubled overnight. And then when people leave or get evicted, they're being flipped into condos. And so like the housing stock for, you know, the people that make your lattes and the people that like, you know, take out your trash are, um, literally you're not going to be able to live in Spokane. So, um, it's a really, really big problem. And so kind of, and that's what what I'm trying to do with like range is like, think about like call out these like national discussions, but then localize them because I, I think everybody is so focused on, and for the last four years, how can you not be focused on the national shit show? But it's also like, what can you do? Like ultimately what can, what, what change can you affect on that scale? when you live in Spokane or anywhere, really, when you're just a single individual person where you can have profound impact. And this is something that I've learned time and time again, is like 
at the local level. You can have a profound impact on your city council district or your larger city. You can call the mayor's office and get a response in a couple days, you know, so, and you can then organize your neighbors to make real change. And so that's the other part of like what we're doing with range is like sort of helping people understand the complexity of these issues, but then giving them action items to actually be like, okay, if you're as angry about this as I am, call this person, this person, and this person, or write this, write this congressperson, write this state legislator, write this city council person, write this county commissioner or whatever, you know, just to like make, um, I don't know how you feel. I feel like, I feel pissed. But yeah, no, totally. And I think, and I think, but it's also, <laughs> I think, people, I think people feel pissed, but they also feel powerless. And so part of the yeah. idea is how do we get, how do we like, and actually, and it's true that I think individual people will always be powerful, powerless against capital. But what you build is you build solidarity, you build community. And when there's like thousands of you, you know, advocating for something, you're, you might have a, um, a chance against a single wealthy developer in your town or a, you know, somebody who's used to being a lone voice with a lot of money behind them. Uh, people at the, at least at this level, at the level of the city or at the level of the state can sort of gang up and be like, no, 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 you're, we're not going to let you single person and your money dictate the way our neighborhood changes. It's going to be us. that's dictating that. So, um, that's the hope anyways. It sounds like community. Yeah. Um, and, and I think it's, it's also, um, building power, right? Cause like community mm-hmm. by itself, community, you know, like solidarity can be, um, and community can be like, um, you can use it to like lick your wounds and soothe each other and like, you know, perform mutual aid, help your neighbor or, and, or you can turn it into power and actually make change and sort of make the, make the world better. Um, and, and that's the hope I think is like doing both of those things. And I don't think in America we have a very good sense of even mutual aid. Although that's one of the, I would say the, um, the silver linings of coronavirus is that people, you know, we know we've only gotten one $1,200 check in 10 months and wow. the next one we're getting, even if, if we get it, apparently got signed. So we're going to get it. It's like 600 bucks. That's like nothing for anybody. It's a joke. It, it's a it's, joke. And so yeah. what, but what happened, I've seen people, you know, in these communities, these communities that are really, really hard hit just started supporting each other. It was like <laughs> as simple as like, you know, helping people find toilet paper when there was no toilet paper, helping people, you know, like all the buy nothing groups have really exploded in, in, um, on Facebook and stuff. It's like, that's, that's solidarity. That's helping your neighbor. That's mutual aid. And, um, it's really, really powerful. And I think we're rediscovering that, um, because we've been trained to just, I don't know, the, the, the sense of American individualism is, uh, toxic. And, uh, and it's also broken. And we, what we've seen, what this pandemic has shown is that individualism is not going to work. Um, and you know, the national government is not going to come to your aid because they fundamentally don't give a shit about regular people. So it's going to take us doing it ourselves. And it's also then maybe going to take us, you know, building power and changing things, but starting, you know, locally and working our way up. Yeah. Yeah. To bring it back to community, I think it's community with a focus goal or maybe mission is another good word or vision. Yeah. I really like that. 
And um, once a collective has a, a, a vision and, and goes from A to B, right, it's a powerful force. Yeah. And once that force is unstoppable in a lot of ways, you know, mm-hmm. due to what we've seen in past history with, um, you know, people standing up for themselves and all the way back to what Martin Luther King Jr., and, uh, and, and I know this is appropriate because in a few weeks it'll be his day. Yeah. Uh, happens to be a Monday, which is one of my favorite days, Monday fun days, I like to call them. But um, it's, it's, it's really interesting the amount of civil um, movements that America has had and is so passionate about. Like, I'm a big history buff. Like, I've actually gone back to uh, a book about a biography about Martin Luther King Jr. recently because I just found him a fascinating figure and how he started as a preacher. Like, I don't even know if you know the history of Martin Luther King Jr., where he started, but yeah, of course you do. You're a journalist like me, so you know know all this stuff. So it's so interesting to see almost history repeating itself over and over and over again and people, like, not – really learning anything or, or or I should say generations repeating themselves um, which to me is a little sad but at the same time it's like I believe that we are learning but we're learning differently yeah. and we're learning in a way with the help of technology let's say with the help of technology we, we're, we're learning in leaps and bounds and we're more powerful today than we were 50 years ago when Martin Luther King Jr. you know was you know, assassinated in the streets. Yeah. And you know, um, so I really believe, like, I, I really believe we're on the edge, like on the cusp of like this golden age that a lot of people don't even want to talk about because they're so, uh, I don't want to say depressed, but so burdened from what's happening in, in politics or what's happening in current events even. And I think that like, you know, we, we, we're, we're so close, Luke. We're so close. <laughs> I think so. I think the question though is like, what are we doing with that technology? Right? Like, are we using it for emancipatory means? Are we using it to sort of like lighten people's burden while still giving them the things that they need to survive? Or are we using it to quote unquote disrupt markets, which usually just means destroying whatever labor power people have, right? Like, do we think, do I think Uber is a emancipatory technology. No, I think it's been used to exploit workers, you know? And so we're absolutely at a cusp where like the technology. So speaking of history, like, uh, the, the, the labor, the free speech, uh, the free speech, uh, protests in Spokane in 1909 were actually was one of the first nonviolent protests that actually was a model that, uh, MLK used for, their the work that they did during the civil rights movement and it was it was workers sort of agitating for fair pay um and around that same time there were all these sort of futurists who were talking about how technology was going to eventually free the working man like you know people were literally um i think as recently as like the 50s and 60s people were predicting that like we'd eventually have like a 16 hour work week and everybody's needs would be met because technology would come along and you know the assembly line would be so powerful that like you would just push a couple buttons and go home that was like the george jetson thing like the idea like the cartoon of the jetsons was based in a real theory that like technology just set on its course would set everybody free but Mm. what we've learned is that like technology can be like anything like capital itself can be captured by the people by certain by people with power and 
unless we fight for, you know, to use that technology, uh, in ways that sort of make our work lives better, um, then, or just our lives better. And that, that is like, you know, the, the bounty of that technology is, is equitably shared. Then it's just going to create misery. Like I have a friend who recently left Apple where he was a programmer who made just buckets of money. And even living in Portland, he was able to live super high on the hog, very, very well for himself. And he hated working there every single day. And he worked too hard. He was felt like he was constantly behind, constantly felt like, you know, and this, I'm not talking about an Amazon like warehouse worker here. I'm talking about a guy who's a professional college educated programmer working for one of the top tech companies in the world. Uh, and he hated every single moment of it because of how like immiserating and the money wasn't even worth it. And eventually he quit. And so I think we really, really need to look at our, you know, technology is not going to save us by itself. It's going to take us all sort of demanding more from the people that are, you know, building these platforms and profiting massively off of it, which whatever, like however you feel about, you know, Elon Musk making literally millions of times more money than, you know, his lowest paid worker. Um, we need to demand more from these companies and these people that are profiting so massively off of, um, people's labor because otherwise it's just going to be i'm playing cyberpunk 2077 right now it's just going to be like cyberpunk world you know it's going to be an absolute you know <laughs> brawl <laughs> techno dystopia yeah it's funny you mentioned that game i just finished reading ready player two. Oh yeah how's that ready player one was fun Ready Player One was fun. The movie was fun. Ready Player Two, the book and eventual movie when Steven Spielberg gets a, a decent script. Um, I, I I fear, but I also resonate with what um, Ready Player Two author, who I'm spacing out on the name of. I should know his name, but I don't. I but you should read the book. You should Ernest read the book. It, it, I think what we're trying to get down is um, is empathy. And um, it's something that um, Ready Player Two really touched on with technology of how we're in this virtual world where we can basically do anything, anywhere with any person, you know, or visual person, if, you know, really accurate, because real estate's just got too damn expensive. So everyone goes in the virtual world because it's free. Yeah. And you can have anything you want and you can meet any person or you can be whoever you want to be. That's powerful. And that's a lot to take in for a young person who has no idea what they want in life or what they do. But in the end, in the end, Luke, it's, it's a good story because it has a happy ending and I'm really hoping, (laughs) well, I know I'm going to have a happy ending. Everyone has a choice, right? And, and humans or today we all have choices. We, we we don't live in books, right? We don't live in fiction stories um, as much as we think we do at times. But um, I, I do think we're on the precipice of a third industrial revolution, which I'm sure you've heard of in dealing with technology and dealing with um, renewable energy resources and communication and um, transportation. I think those are the three industries that are really going to spike in the next probably, well, they're already spiking, you know, you've just seen Tesla stock. And so it's really important, I guess, to figure out what team you're on and to um, believe in yourself and trust yourself. Because a lot of people, they, 
they don't. And I see that. And I like, I, I can't do anything like I'm helpless because you have to figure that out for yourself in order to do what you want to do in life and pursue what you love and, and, and do the right thing and be a better human being, right? And have empathy because technology doesn't have empathy, right? It's all based on algorithms these days. And so it's really important, I guess, to kind of bring it all back about your podcast. I think what you're doing is amazing and I really uh, wish you the best with it. And I, and I hope a lot of people listen to it. I hope a lot of people listen to my podcast. I think podcast is one of the, 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 the last realms of opportunity when, it, when, when we can speak up and actually say what we want to say, not what, we, what other people think we mean. You know, it's like definitive. It's, 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 this is the literal definition. This is not fake news. These aren't fake words. These are real words back in Webster's Dictionary in 18 or whatever, hundreds when he started words, right? Words are so important as a copywriter, as a journalist, even investigative reporting, you know, was another thing that brought my uh, mind when I took that class back up in the University of Alaska in Fairbanks, one of the best journalism programs, I think, no bias, but it's really, really important, Luke, to, to, to see what you're doing. And I hope a lot of people listen. And I hope a lot of people pay attention. Um, we don't have enough active listeners, and we don't have enough leaders. And I think this leadership um, country that we live in is, is needs to uh, figure out what they want and then take a stand and actually become a leader in their industry, wherever they are, any person in any world or even part of the U.S., whoever's listening to this, they really have to, to just stand up and speak. And so I'm really glad what you're doing, Luke. It's, it's awesome. Is there anything Thanks, else you want to say before we wrap it up, Luke? I think that's good. Yeah. I went off. Cool. I went off hard enough, I guess. I got my blood pressure up a little bit. Me too, man. I'm actually taking some meds right now, so I've got to really tone it down. But uh, <laughs> thank you so much again, Luke, Thanks, for man. your time. Uh, I hope we can catch up again soon, definitely even off the camera. And uh, you have an amazing day. Thanks for joining us on show. Podcast. Thanks, Doc. Yep. See ya. Hey there, you creative entrepreneur. I'm here to tell you about this new creative agency called Leaders. Leaders specializes in building your brand or business through your story to the online market safely. Leaders are made up of general specialists in photo, video, web, marketing, and copy. If you are a small business or brand struggling in the online sphere, Leader is here for you. You can find Leader on their Instagram at leaders.co, spelled L-E-A-D-R-S dot co. If you would like to advertise with Show Podcast, slide us a DM at our Instagram at show.podcast with a period in the middle of show and podcast. Thanks, guys, and have a great day.